dad had to leave home at age 15 to support the family. He found himself at uh, Camp Mansfield in Vermont. Uh, as a 15-year-old, three years under the required age, uh, he forged a birth certificate to get in. And uh, he found himself being picked on because he hadn't started shaving. His voice hadn't changed. Uh, the, the older man called him Doris. An excerpt from today's guest, who edited his father's memoir of life aboard a World War II Liberty ship and turned it into a page-turning book. Dr. Paul Gill is here to discuss Armageddon in the Arctic Ocean. I'm Robert Child, and this is Point of the Spear. Today's guest attended the University of Notre Dame and the University of Alabama School of Medicine. He practiced emergency medicine for 35 years and was a freelance medical writer for many of those years. His articles appeared in many outdoor magazines and his books, The Ragged Mountain Press Guide to Wilderness Medicine and First Aid and The Onboard Medical Handbook were published by McGraw-Hill. His current book is called Armageddon in the Arctic Ocean and Dr. Paul Gill joins us now. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me, Rob. I've been looking forward to it. I have as well. Now, before we get into the story, the catalyst for your book was an unfulfilled promise you made to your father. I thought that was interesting. Can you tell us about that? Yes, uh, an unfulfilled promise, uh, an unexpected uh, request by my dad as he was, as he was near death. Uh, in the year 2000, he was dying of lung cancer. Mm. He had been, uh, as long as I could recall as a child and growing up, he uh, had talked about a diary he kept during uh, the voyage to Russia in 1942 with convoy PQ-18. He was third mate on the SS Nathaniel Green, a Liberty ship. And uh, every once in a while he'd talk about the fact that he was going to write a book. It was going to be entitled Red Waters. He was going to talk about the, the terrible uh, combat that he experienced, as well as his uh, experience with communist uh, uh, Stalinist uh, Russia. Uh, so dad retired in 19, no, about 1981 or two, and set about uh, very studiously researching uh, the material for his book and started writing. And he did, apparently got off to a good start then he ran into health problems, uh, failing vision, uh, about of uh, colon cancer, various things came up that really uh, made it very, very difficult for him to finish the book. So after almost 20 years of, of effort and repeated uh, um, efforts on my part to help him, because mm -hmm. I've done some freelance magazine writing and uh, published a couple of uh, books on medical topics. I felt I could lend him a hand, but he was a very proud man. And this was his book, his project. And thank you, but uh, no, I'll do it. Right. But uh, finally, uh, with fate staring him in the face um, and not responding to chemotherapy for his cancer, he he did ask me to, to my great surprise, he asked me to to edit the manuscript, put it together and find a publisher. And I, of course, said, yes, I'll do that, Dad. Um, and then after he died and the dust settled, I, I looked at the materials and I realized it was a partially completed manuscript and there's some big gaps. Mm. Uh, although there are many, many, many boxes of materials, uh, drafts, manuscript drafts, outlines, notes, correspondence, uh, and so on. 
I thought, all right, well, I've got to do this someday, but <laughs> when I retire, I'll do it. So, so almost 20 years elapsed. And uh, one day I got a call from my little granddaughter who was, I think in sixth grade at the time, mm -hmm. taking part in a, a class project where they were to ask their grandfathers about their father's participation in World War II. So I sat down and boy, it just flowed. The whole story, because my dad had relate, related many of the stories related to his experience. And by the end of the 20 or 30 minutes, uh, speaking with Natalie, I, I, I realized I have to do this. If I don't do it, nobody will do it. I had all the material. My dad had never really confided in my sisters. Uh, so I, I did. I, I got started and I realized that his the quality of the writing, at least in the initial chapters, was excellent. And mm. the, the chapter on the, the the convoy battle was absolutely excellent. It just needed light editing. Some of the other sure. chapters needed actually to be woven together. Uh, notes and everything had to be woven together. But I, I was able to pick up on his style and his pace. And uh, I, I think it turned out uh, pretty well. It did, definitely. Now, um, before we get into his story, could you tell our listeners briefly what Liberty Ships were? and in World War II, and what was their mission? Yeah, well, you listeners know very well that the US entered the war after we were attacked uh, by the Japanese at Pearl Harbor. The Brits have been in the war for you know a couple of years by the point they had lost a lot of shipping. As an island nation, they're very dependent on, on uh, imports, and especially uh, in the midst of war, imports of war material, as well as food and, and so on. Uh, they lost a lot of ships to the U-boat menace, and right. uh, President Roosevelt uh, got together with the Brits, and they decided they needed to come up with a crash building program. The Brits had uh, a design in mind that they thought would be uh, suitable. It was uh, they, they were called uh, Liberty ships. Uh, the Brit, I mean, the Americans gave them that name. They're about 400 feet long, about uh, 27 feet in beam. They they were slow. They had uh, steam propulsion and could do a maximum of about 11 knots. But the advantage to this design was that they were, it was a very simple design and they elected to use uh, a modular uh, format where they would uh, weld uh, sections of the hull uh, and then bring them together and weld them. No rivets or very few rivets. Mm. Customarily a ship would be riveted they felt we can do this much faster with, with less skilled labor if we just use welds. Uh, and they also, thanks to Henry Kaiser, shipbuilding went to assembly line mode. And Henry Kaiser was uh, well known. I think he was involved in the aluminum business uh, mm. initially, but he was kind of a brilliant man who just knew how to amp up industrial production. By the end of the war, the U.S. had produced uh, 2,710 of these Liberty ships. Wow. By the way, the Nathaniel Green was number three. It was huh. uh, built in North Carolina and launched, was actually, uh, uh, well, it was laid down before the war started uh, and was actually brought into service in April of 1942 before the US had really become involved at all, except in, as far as convoy activity. Yeah, yeah. Now, getting to your father's story in your research about his uh, youth, were there things that you discovered, events or things in his character 
he discovered that prepared him for the challenges of war? Yes, Rob. Fundamentally, it was a matter of uh, culture. You know, nowadays there seems to be a lot of talk about culture, particularly in, in the athletic sense that a team um, takes on a, say, a football team takes on a certain culture where they, they um, toughness is expected yeah. and, and putting the team first and so on and so forth. And that was very much the case in my father's family growing up. His father uh, had, had gone to sea in schooners. Uh, starting at age 13, he actually fished off the Grand Banks for uh, three years to support his family starting at age 13, and then spent uh, almost two more decades in uh, some of the big coal schooners that went back and forth between New England and Chesapeake Bay ports hauling coal. Wow. He was a tough, real tough, tough father. I, I mean, I remember him very well as a very loving, kindly grandfather, but uh, he was a a taskmaster and he he really they had uh, there were five boys no six boys and one girl in the family those boys were you know i knew them all they were such a tough kids and mm -hmm. they grew up in a very tough section of boston an irish virtually an irish ghetto and it was tough during the depression era so mm -hmm. the culture within the family within the the community was tough dad had to leave home at age 15 to support the family he found himself at uh, Camp Mansfield in Vermont uh, as a 15-year-old, three years under the required age. Uh, he forged a birth certificate to get in, and uh, he found himself being picked on because he hadn't started shaving, his voice hadn't changed. Uh, the, the older man called him Doris, and so <laughs> oh. he said he had, to, he had to stick up for himself. So he went from that the whole, tough home environment to a tough CCC environment. Uh, and then went off to sea at age 16, you know, working on ships with men from, you know, the late teens to 40s, 50s, 60s and older. Very tough environment. I hope you're enjoying this episode. Next time, former Air Force Colonel Mark Vlahos returns to the show to discuss the 60th Troop Carrier Group. They were the most experienced C-47 group uh, that we had. And uh, from there... The 60th just had a string of firsts, hence uh, leading the way to victory. They, they flew the first combat uh, paratroop drop in North Africa as part of Operation Torch. The first combat glider tow during the invasion of Sicily. Probably flew the first combat medical, one of the first combat medical evacuation missions, you know, in North Africa also. Another reason to click that follow button so you'll be notified when the episode releases. Your father's unit aboard the ship what was it and what were his duties aboard the ship well he was uh, third mate and uh, so he he stood watch uh two four-hour watches a day uh, uh i'm not talking about during combat but uh, ordinarily i think he was on the uh, 4 a.m to 8 a.m watch and then the 4 p.m to to 8 p.m watch mm -hmm. ordinarily and his his job as a ship's officer was uh, to supervise uh steering of the ship, navigation, uh, just general uh, supervision of crew activities. Now, w once they became involved in combat operations, he was assigned to the uh, stern gun post. Oh. Uh, at the stern of the ship, these Liberty ships were, out, were heavily armed. Uh, at the bow, there was a three and a half inch uh, gun. At the stern, there was a four inch gun. And uh, the ship 
had numerous uh, 50 cal Browning machine guns and Ehrlichon uh, 20 millimeter anti-aircraft guns. Mm. Uh, so he was assigned to all the gunnery, the rear of the ship. His main job actually was to keep the ammunition flowing from the magazine up to that gun position. But uh, the, the combat was so hot and heavy at times that uh, he, he took his turn at, at a 50 cal machine gun mm. himself. Yeah. I, it's interesting because... Um... I think a lot of people have the idea in their minds that these Liberty ships were not armed like that and did not uh, experience combat, that they were just sailing supplies across, you know, the sea and uh, back and forth, but no engagement. So that is definitely eye-opening. And that kind of leads me into my next question was, well, through your research and, and writing the manuscript, what do you believe your father's biggest test was at sea and in the war? Well, uh, as, I, as I discussed in the introduction to the book, uh, dad first started talking to me about his sea stories, his, early, his youthful experiences in the war, doing long drives out to a farmhouse that my family bought uh, at one point in the late 1950s. Uh, with the idea of renovating it and making it a vacation home or selling it. At any rate, dad started to open up uh, about his, his youthful experiences and many of which were actually kind of comical. Some weren't so comical at all. They're mm -hmm. very heartbreaking in a way. But he, he told me that on his first voyage uh, as a 16 year old galley boy on the SS Halo, an oil tanker, they were steaming past the uh, the Outer Banks, Cape Hatteras, and it was very hot. It was summertime. And uh, one of the crew members suggested that they take their mattresses out of the cabins and put them on deck and sleep under the stars. So mm -hmm. three or four of the younger ones did this and everything was fine until the middle of the night, a storm brewed up and all of a sudden the ship is fighting its way into a, a headstorm. And my dad found himself floating in a, in a, Title a virtual tsunami, and his mattress was swept off the stern of the ship, and he he just barely grabbed onto a, a railing and pulled himself up, minus his mattress. <laughs> he had to concoct a uh, make a mattress of old rags and stuff. After that, got some grief from the captain for losing ship's company. <laughs> oh no! So that was I guess you could say that was a real life and death uh, struggle. The rest of his pre-war maritime experiences uh, were. The, the usual sort of thing of occasional storms and uh, crew member, unruly crew members and, you know, fights and this thing and that thing and uh, all kinds of adventures ashore, and, which I devote some, some time to, especially dad's visits to uh, Hamburg, Germany. Mm. He, he, he uh, had some really, really wonderful experiences and eye-opening experiences there. Hamburg being one of the great seaports of the world, but also during the time of uh, 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 Hitler's uh, takeover of power, he saw some things that were quite shocking to him. Yeah, it's, it's quite a city. I've been there to Hamburg. That's for yeah, sure. I, I plan to go someday. To, I just want to kind of revisit some of the spots that my dad visited 80 yeah, years ago. I was there in the 90s. Um, what is it you'd like to leave our listeners with about the story 
and especially to entice them to pick it up and uh, give it a read. Yeah, well, Rob, the, uh, there are many features of my dad's life and his biography that were really fascinating, uh, including not only the the Merchant Marine experiences, but riding the rails across the United States as an 18 year old with his brother. Mm. Uh, they had truly some, some uh, near death experiences on that. But the, the heart of the story is really, I think it's chapter 11, where he describes the, the voyage to Archangel. It was after, after the voyage was completed, the Royal Navy said it was the biggest battle, at least to that point of World War II, the biggest convoy battle. Uh, oh, wow. You have to remember Stalingrad was was uh, shaping up as a real pivotal battle at that time, and and the the convoy was bringing all kinds of war material that actually that the material that actually arrived in Archangel was being used in the battlefield days later. You know, it was whipped down wow. there very quickly by train and tanks and ammunition and medical supplies were actually being put into battle. So. That's the heart of the book, but the very, very core story that my dad told me once, and it brought tears to my eyes as a 12 or 13 year old boy was uh, the, the ship next to his had been torpedoed. It was an ammunition ship and it virtually blew up. It, it blew into a, millions of little pieces. It rained mm -hmm. on, on his ship, almost destroyed his ship and blew off much of the superstructure on his ship, the green. Uh, the captain thought the green itself had been torpedoed and he ordered the men to get into the lifeboats, stop the engines, do, do a survey and see if the ship could be saved. So they fell behind the convoy. They were in mortal danger because U-boats and planes would pick off any stragglers. Sure. And the captain, dad said that the night before the captain, Captain Vickers said, Mr. Gill, I see that none of our American ships are flying the stars and stripes. I want you to make sure that old glory is flying from our, 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 from our masthead uh, when we go into battle tomorrow. So in the midst of this thinking the ship was sinking, my dad went to the flag locker, got out old glory and ran it up the, uh, the halyard, ran it up the, the mast. And the crew, all the crew saw this and it inspired them tremendously. They started cheering wildly. They got out of the lifeboats and were determined. The captain took another look and said, okay, I think we can get back, rejoin the convoy. And they did slowly. They rejoined the convoy and the entire, all the ships of the convoy cheered wildly as this battered Liberty ship that looked like it was gonna go down, rejoined the convoy. And uh, as a consequence of, of that and destroying nine Nazi aircraft during the battle or eight during the battle, one later in the Mediterranean, the, the Green was uh, awarded a gallant ship citation, nine American merchant ships out of over 4,000, only nine were named gallant ships. And there's, there's a plaque in the Kings Point Merchant Marine Academy outside New York City there's a, actually a room with plaques devoted to these nine merchant ships and they they all have stories i've read all their stories and it, it's quite awesome quite awe-inspiring and and that's an awe-inspiring story you you um painted the picture vividly thank you the book is called armageddon in the arctic ocean paul thank you so much for coming on the show today this has been great it's been my pleasure rob thank you very much 
That's it for this episode. Thank you so much for joining me. Next time, former Air Force Colonel Mark Vlahos returns to the show to discuss his new book on the 60th Troop Carrier Group. They were the most experienced C-47 group uh, that we had. And uh, from there, the 60th just had a string of firsts, hence uh, leading the way to victory. They, they flew the first combat uh, paratroop drop in North Africa as part of Operation Torch. The first combat glider tow during the invasion of Sicily. Probably flew the first combat medical, one of the first combat medical evacuation missions, you know, in North Africa also. Another reason to click that follow button to be notified when the episode releases. And if you like what you hear, leave a review or rating or just click the follow button. And be sure to check out our Point of the Spear YouTube channel with bonus video material plus full military history documentaries. There's tons to explore, and I hope you check it out. I'm Robert Child, and this has been Point of the Spear. Music licensed from audioblocks.com. Point of the Spear is produced by RSC Media Group.